This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. Chapter 7 is where we want to be this morning, Acts chapter 7. And just reading verse 31 and 32. So Acts 7, 31, 32. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. With some seven billion people on earth today, it's hardly surprising that we struggle with identity. Who am I? What is my role? In the grand scheme of things, am I just a blip on the radar of humanity? Do I even register? Have I a voice? And if I have, is anybody listening? What difference, of any, does my role in life, what difference does it make to anyone or anything? Ever felt lost in a crowd? Ever felt alone in a room full of people? Elderly people often say that the older they get, the more invisible they become. People talk around them and over them, but not at them and to them. So it's easy in those times to lose your sense of identity, your appreciation of your own personhood. But this scripture reminds us that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that he's the God of the individual. Every single person counts with God. Now, Christianity seems to be unique in this respect, that God responds to us as individuals. Cults tend to produce clones of their leader. False religions reproduce faceless gingerbread men without individuality or personality. Communist China, particularly during the reign of Mao Zedong, is a classic example. We're untold millions of Chinese wore the exact same uniform, tunic, as the great leader with their little peaked hat and their little straight uniform. And they all had their little red book, which were the sayings of Matsutong, and they waved them by the millions and had to learn them and recite them and refer to them often. And so it reproduced countless people all looking and sounding exactly the same. But God is the God of the individual. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And throughout Scripture, we see that there are many lists of genealogies, of families, 
particularly in the Old Testament. And I know that when you're trying to read through the Bible, very often when you get to those genealogies, uh, it sounds the most boring thing imaginable. All this great big list, sometimes whole chapters, just lists and lists and lists of family names. Well, if your family name is there, it wouldn't be boring. Sure it wouldn't. Actually, there's some great insights into some of those names. But they're just lists and lists and lists and lists of names because every single one of them counts with God. If you take just a, a glance at the New Testament and look at all the personal encounters that Jesus had with individuals, he did not treat them all the same. It wasn't one size fits all. In conversation, in action, it was different every single time because he treated each person as an individual. Now, I'm not for any, uh, <laughs> I'm certainly not endorsing the politics of Bill Clinton or his, his reputation or character, not at all. But people say the one outstanding feature he has, that if he's in a room full of people, whoever he's talking to has his undivided attention. It's as if they said there's nobody else in the room. He makes eye contact and he locks into them and he talks to them and makes them feel they're the only person in that room that he's interested in. That seems to be a, a trait that he's got to be able to do that. I think that Jesus was very much like that. Jesus could spot the individual in the crowd. He could take the one person aside or he could go out of his way to meet the one person because he was interested in individuals. If you look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, how that Jesus, the risen, glorified, ascended Christ, standing in the midst of the seven churches, and how that, for the most part, he says the same things to them all, but, but, he has something exclusively to say to each one individually that he doesn't say to the other ones because he doesn't treat even churches, even congregations as just the same because each of us has got a different kind of ethos. And Christ comes and he looks at us as individuals. I think that just being around Jesus gave the disciples a, a sense of of what they were worth to him and what they were worth to the Father. You remember the Apostle John, uh, how that he always referred him to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not that he didn't for a moment think that he didn't love the rest of them, but he was making sure that we knew that he certainly loved him. Uh, and it wasn't that he was being, you know, boastful or bragging about it, but it was just something that he felt Hey, I know he loves them, but he loves me. Uh, Apostle Paul says about Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Even the great Apostle Paul who preached to multitudes around the, the country at his time, but yet he loves me and gave himself for me. Yes, he gave himself for the world, but he gave himself for me because he understood what it's like to be an individual in God's sight. Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. As an individual, he cares for you. Jesus said that even the very hairs of your head are all numbered individually. Not even counted, but numbered. In Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul, in the very end of his great book, he lists 
35, you can count them, 35 individuals that helped him in the gospel. 35 names. Can you imagine if you belonged to the church in Rome and you got this letter? Can you imagine if the leader stood up and began to read through the letter and at the end of it, he says, now this is how Paul signs off and he lists 35 individual names. Could you imagine if your name was one of those that he listed? How would that make you feel? That would make you feel that your effort, that your endeavor has been worthwhile. Revelation chapter 20. Just get you to turn to this for a second. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, notice here there's the book of life. And our names as believers today are in the book of life. Imagine your name right now is recorded in heaven. If an angel was to go to the book of life and turn over the pages, he would find your name there. I don't know whether it works alphabetically or what, but your name would most certainly be in the Lamb's book of life. But if your name was not in that Lamb's book of life, it would be in the other books that you could be judged out of. So heaven records every individual name of every person on the face of the earth since time began. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is a sobering thought, is it not? But thank God in his mercy he came and he saved us. And thank God our names today are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is a God of the individual. And you're an individual, unique in so many ways. But God is a God also of individuality. You are unique above all the creatures on the face of the earth. But more than that, you are uniquely you. There is no one quite like you. You say, well, I'm glad to hear that. Daisy Osborne, the late wife of uh, the great evangelist T.L. Osborne, said that don't ever try to be the other person 
because God's already got one of those. <laughs> and that's good advice, isn't it? But he wants you. God is a God of infinite, incredible variety. No two snowflakes are the same. And there's billions of them in a snowstorm. No two fingerprints are exactly the same. No two iris patterns of your eyes are exactly the same, which is why we use them for security reasons. Look at the variety of animals and plant life and birds and fish and flowers. It's incredible, isn't it? They're even finding plants and animals and insects that they never knew existed. They're finding them yet. Look at the disciples that Jesus chose. Peter, James, and John. They were fishermen. They had the same profession. But that's where the similarities ended. Peter was the brash, wasn't he? He was the brash, loud, opinionated. <laughs> he was the one <laughs> who was impulsive. He was the one who talked more than listened. He was the one, if anybody was going to put their foot in their mouth, it was him. And James and John, they were hotheads. Now we know that when they became filled with the Spirit and after three years with Christ and filled with the Spirit, they changed. But they were hotheads. They wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. Can you imagine that? What sort of preachers would they be? Well, we don't like them, so God just burned them up. I wonder Jesus says, you know not what spirit you're of. Thomas was a skeptic. Even though his closest friends told him that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, he would not believe it. He was completely skeptical. Unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe. Couldn't get any more skeptical than that. Sure you couldn't. Matthew was a tax collector. The most hated profession in all Israel. Probably other than pig farmers. Sorry, Brian. Brian's dad's a pig farmer. <laughs> but he's not a Jew, sure, isn't he? No. Simon was a zealot. Uh, he was a paramilitarist. Simon hated the Romans with a passion. Simon would have killed a Roman. That's how much he hated them. And for Simon and Matthew to come together on the same team, I mean, if he hated Romans, he must have hated tax collectors worse than Romans. But yet, they were part of Jesus' team. All highly individual, all completely and utterly different personalities. And yet Jesus brought them all together. And actually, eventually, all of these different personalities became the very foundation of the early church that the church was built upon and became the apostles. Paul and Barnabas... Paul was the no-nonsense, 
do it right or get out of my way, leader. My way or the highway. That was Paul. Didn't suffer fools gladly. I mean, he could talk tough and meant it and would do it. I don't know if I would ever wanted Paul to be my pastor. He'd be a brilliant teacher. He'd be a great evangelist. He'd be the best missionary you could ever imagine. But to be your pastor, I'm telling you, he would hit you right between the eyes. There'd be no soft touch with him. And Barnabas, whom the church called the son of consolation, or the son of encouragement, he was the bridge builder. He was the peacemaker. He was the reconciler. You remember how in Acts, how the, in the prayer meeting, how the Holy Spirit spoke and said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I send them. And how as they went out, Barnabas, the one who would want to be the encourager, the one who would want to encourage young men in the ministry, he took, wanted to take his nephew, John Mark, with them. And Paul agreed. But do you remember how they went out to do the work in the mission field? And after a little while, John Mark had enough and he turned back and walked no more with them, come back to the mother church. And they went on and did their missionary journey. And then the next time when they're gone on their second missionary journey, <laughs> Barnabas said, look, give the young man a second chance. All right, I know you felt he blew it, but give him another chance. And Paul wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have it. He wasn't going to put up with that. You get one chance and that's it. You blow it too bad. I'm doing the work. If you don't want to do it, I'm doing it. That was Paul. And the contention became so great between them that they parted company. And Silas then joined up with Paul and the rest has been history. Now listen, who was right and who was wrong? Also, before we answer that question, do you remember that it was Barnabas was the one who actually gave Paul the first chance with the gospel? Because the early church was so skeptical about Saul of Tarsus had become a believer and now was a preacher of the gospel. They just did not believe it. They thought it was a trick. And it was Barnabas who stuck his neck out who took the chance, who went to the leaders of the early church and said, listen, I believe this man. I believe he's sincere. Give this man a chance. Let him prove himself. And they did. Thank God they did. But here's Paul not wanting to give young John Mark a chance. And they separated. Who was right? Who was wrong? Well, you could argue that to the cows come home. But let me say this, that later on, it was the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy said, hey, bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me for the ministry. Hmm. Even when Paul got an older man and looked back and he looked at the life of Mark, he realized, hey, God is using this young man. I could do with him. I need his help. And of course, Mark went on to write the wonderful gospel of Mark which is a beautiful gospel, isn't it? And so God would put these very different personalities and people together and ministries together. Mary and Martha, could two sisters be so different? 
Martha was the organizer. She was the hostess. She was the one who would set a perfect table. She was the practical one, the hurried and the hurried one. And Mary, her sister, she was the reflective, meditative one. She was the one who would be the calm one, the thinker. And I can imagine that conversation that day whenever Jesus, that evening when Jesus and, and the disciples came to their home as they often would. Jesus loved being in their home with, uh, with their brother Lazarus. And I can imagine the conversation and how that the men sat down around the tables and, and, and were, were talking. And the conversation inevitably went on to spiritual things. And Jesus was, was teaching. And Martha was in the kitchen busy. And I can imagine Mary going into her and say, Martha, Martha, listen, just hold everything. Jesus is saying really important stuff here. We really should be in there listening. And Martha, I can imagine her saying, come on, Mary, you know what men are like. You know, if their bellies are rumbling, you know, they're going to be grumpy. Come on, get food and give them something to eat. There's plenty of time later to talk. You can talk all night if you want, but let's feed them first. And Mary would say, no, Martha, I'm telling you, this is important. I'm going to go in. I'm going to sit down at his feet because I don't want to miss this. And Martha says, come on, Mary, you're always doing this on me. I'm the one stuck in this kitchen all the time. This is the way the conversation would go. But Jesus loved them both. And both of them, in their own way, ministered unto him many, many times. Now, right at that moment, there's no question. Jesus says, Martha, you're cumbered. You're, you're, you're upset. You're, you're busying yourself about many things. This one thing's needful. Mary's chosen a good part. He wasn't really putting Martha down, but he was saying, this is really important. And somehow Mary has grasped the importance of this. You know, I like to think that, that Mary would sit at his feet. Mary was the one who would sit, but Martha would be the one who would set. And you need sitters and setters, don't you? You, you need people who'll work. You need people who'll do lunch. Let's do lunch with Sarah and get the table set and all of that. But you need people who will pray, who will intercede, who will be at the prayer meeting, who do all that. You know, you, you, need, you need both. And there's some people who are very practical. They're really, really good at practical stuff. And you need that. No church could exist without that. We need all the help that we can get. So Jesus puts these people together. Think of Abraham with his rugged, his unwavering faith and determination to resolve and to do the will of God, no matter what, to leave Ur of the Chaldees. When all he has is a word from God, to leave it, to find a city whose builder and maker is God. That took great faith to do that. But that was Abraham. If God spoke, he would do it. It didn't matter if it meant leaving his home or leaving his family or leaving everything he ever knew. He would just do it. He was rugged in faith as an individual. And yet his son Isaac, his son Isaac was very different. It's not that he didn't have faith, but it wasn't as rugged as his father Abraham. I read this little article about Isaac by Clarence McCartney. He said, so far as fame is concerned, 
Isaac had the misfortune to come between two of the greatest and most striking personalities of the Bible. Abraham, who was his father, and Jacob, who was his son. Isaac was not an innovator. There's nothing striking or dramatic or thrilling in his life, with the exception of his father Abraham offering him up at Mount Moriah. Yet Isaac carried on the great tradition of faith in God and was a necessary link in the chain of the divine purpose and destiny. Some men are great in what they initiate and discover. Others are great in what they preserve or rediscover. The last was preeminently true of Isaac. G. Campbell Morgan said, Abraham is more interesting than Isaac, and Jacob is more interesting than Isaac to us, but not to God. <laughs> but not to God. Everyone has a part to play. Genesis 25, 27, and the King James says that Jacob was a plain man. And the NASB says he was a quiet man. And the NIV says he was a mild man dwelling in tents. In the New King James, which is what I normally preach from, Jacob liked... He was a man, let me see, he was a, yes, NIV, he was a mild man dwelling in tents. What does the New King James say? Anybody got that handy? Would you like to read that out for me? Hmm? Trevor, you got it? Oh, Genesis twenty five, twenty seven. Technology is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Jacob was a quiet man. Jacob was a plain man. Jacob was a peaceful man. But Esau was entirely different. Jacob, you get the image with Jacob that he was not certainly an outdoor man. He loved to hang around the tent where his mother was. And I'm sure he liked to be in the kitchen where his mother was. You could get the impression that Jacob was a bit of a mummy's boy. And he probably was. But Esau was entirely different. Esau, he was the outdoor type. He was the hunter. He was the archer. He was interested in sports. By the way, Esau had a big, red, hairy chest. Do you believe me? Look, Genesis 25. When Esau was born, he was all red and hairy, it says. In fact, I believe that if Esau had took off his shirt, you'd think he had a mohair jumper on. <laughs> That's what he was like. And I'm sure if TV had been invented in those days, which it wasn't, but if it had been, I could imagine that Jacob would have been watching the great British bake-off of his mother. And that Esau would have been watching Bear Grylls. 
or the monster truck fest or something like that. They were just entirely two different individuals, completely different. And yet, they belong to the same family, born of the same mother. Graham Scroggie said that Jacob's life was in three parts. Jacob the natural man, but then Jacob the carnal man, the one who was crafty, the one who schemed, the one who's prepared to lie to his father to get the birthright. But then the latter part of Jacob's life was Jacob the spiritual man. Whenever he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and he became not Jacob, but Israel, a prince with God, because he prevailed with God and man. God is the God of the individual. God is the God of individuality. Some of you women may be rare in that you don't like shopping. I have actually met some woman, believe it or not, you'll, you'll struggle to believe this, but they told me, I don't like shopping. Now, that was a shock to my system. <laughs> there are actually some men in here who don't like sport. Football turns them off. It's a big bore to them. Now, that's rare, but that's okay. That's all right. You're individual. But just don't go to somebody's house on Saturday night with mice and the days on. But other than that, you're fine. <laughs> Over the years within this church, I've seen all of your individual personalities. And you see mine and you know mine. And that's good, isn't it? It's good to have a good mix of personalities. We're not all just cut out of the same cloth. Sure, we're not. We're different. And that's good that we're different. That's why we have to put each up with each other sometimes because of our differences, because of our personalities. But not only that, we'll close with this. He's the God of every generation. He's the God of every generation. He was the God of Abraham's generation, the God of Isaac's generation, the God of Jacob's generation, and he's the God of our generation. And what a generation that we live in today. Every generation has had to face its own battles. Now, my generation, we are baby boomers. We were the ones who were born just after the Second World War. And we were born too late to ever know what a world war was like. Our parents did, but we never did. But we have had our own challenges because we have lived through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And all of those decades have had their own challenges. These have been the decades of the permissive society, of the rock and roll rebellious years. Some of you actually wore braces and tartan outfits and had long hair. I had, can you imagine I had long hair at one time? Can you imagine I had hair down to my shoulders? Can you imagine that? I mean, I looked like something in a 70s movie or something. I really did. I'll tell you a funny thing. My, my eldest sister, when she was getting married, I was to be the best man. She said to me, David, if you don't get your hair cut, you're not going to be my best man. You're not going into church looking like that. I wasn't a believer at that time. You know what I did? I waited to the day before. 
I made her sweat it out. But she was as adamant as I was. You don't get your hair cut, you'll not be best man. So I waited the day before and I got the lot whacked off. Boy, I felt strange. First time in years I had that whacked off. I know you're trying to imagine me now. Look at me, God. I know you're sitting there. I've just ruined the rest of the service for you, haven't you? Just have a wee beard too, but that's another story. But oh, Sally, you had the photos, all right? We'll get those photos out in cell group night some night and show you get a laugh. Only if you bring yours, of course. And then we had the, the years of the nuclear threat. Now, you see, you young people, you have no idea. You, you never lived through the nuclear threat. When people was out marching the street, banned the bomb, and it looked as if Russia was going to nuke us, and it looked as if America was going to nuke them. Actually, there was times that right on the very brink of nuclear war. That's what we lived through at times. Of course, we've lived through 30 years of trouble in our wee province and that wasn't easy to live through either. And then the terrible droughts in Africa, the Middle East wars, the Balkans wars, the materialism and greed that has just caused so much uh, challenges for economies and individuals. We've had to live all through all of those challenges. Every generation has had its challenges. The church in every generation also has had its challenges. And we are challenged right now like never before. Christianity is under attack like never before. All over the world, Christianity is under attack from militant atheism, from Islam, from all kinds of religions, uh, from academia, uh, who say that unless you believe in evolution, you are not scientific, we don't want to publish your works, we don't want to hear what you've got to say. That stuff is going on all the time. In fact, they say it's dangerous to students to teach creation. It's dangerous. Creationists are treated as subversives. You say, but is that really true? Well, let me just read you something, all right? We'll be closing in a moment. This is from Creation Ministries International. It's the magazine I get. There's a man called Philip Bell, and he's writing... And he's writing to American audience primarily, but he's writing what it was like. He comes from England, what it used to be like. So in many ways, the experience of children and young people raised in today's Western societies is very different from a generation or two ago. Children in the 1970s, like myself, he said, had no knowledge of mobile telephones, computers, video games, tablets, devices, the internet, satellite navigation, and more besides. They were not even on our radar. See, our children cannot understand what it was like before mobile phones and before internet and before tablets and all of that stuff. But we can't. Another radical difference back then was the degree to which religion was still an accepted part of society. In my native UK, it was quite common for children to be sent to Sunday school, even those from non-Christian families. Does that apply to anybody in here? Anybody in here sent to Sunday school? All right. Oh, boys, I've never seen as many heathens in my life. What happened to the rest of you? Anyway, that's what life was like, wasn't it? Christian assemblies, commerce, and organized sport were largely restricted to a, a six-day week the rates of cohabitation of unmarried couples and of children born out of wedlock was very, very low. So-called gay marriage was unheard of. We could go on and on. But the fact is, today, the moral slide is aided and abetted by governments and tolerated, even welcomed by the spokespersons for the established church. 
It would be deeply shocking for many people of that time. Christianity was much more an accepted part of the fabric of life unlike today. And then it goes on. Biblically-minded Christians are increasingly aware that in this encroaching secularism has much to do with the church's capitulation to evolutionary dogma in past generations, that the chickens are coming home to roost as we are increasingly reaping the evil fruit of this anti-God philosophy. However, back in 2007, unnoticed by many, now listen to this, the Council of Europe passed a resolution which is nothing less than a full frontal assault upon biblical Christianity. At the heart of their concerns was the values that form the very essence of the Council of Europe risk being directly threatened by creationist fundamentalists. Now you see, creationists today are being lambasted by many in the church and saying it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter, forget about it, just say people need to get saved, forget about all this stuff about creation. But the Council of Europe sees it as a real threat. And what the devil sees as a real threat must be a threat. So they say, the values that form the very essence of the Council of Europe is at risk being directly threatened by creationist fundamentalists. They claim, moreover, it is impossible to reconcile faith and science and contrasted ideas involving God, which they labeled absurd with evolution, which they asserted to be, listen to this, the central theory for our understanding of life on earth and for the reassessment of the foundations of our societies. So here's the Council of Europe saying plainly, loudly, that Christianity should not be the foundation of society. It's evolution. Away with creationism, away with the Bible, away with this notion of God, and put in its place as the foundation for a society, evolution. That's what they say. No wonder Christianity is under attack. No wonder the Word of God is under attack. And so the church is having all kinds of challenges. The National Church of Great Britain, which is the Church of England, is rudderless. It's drifting in a sea of compromise and liberalism. It's whole beneath the waterline. It's in serious, serious trouble. The Church of England and Africa is on the rise. It's on the fall in Britain. Why? Because the Church of England in Africa does not compromise the Word of God, but they compromise it in GB. The church has been attacked by many, many fronts. But in spite of all of this, all of the atheism and all of this stuff, in spite of it all, today, China, China has more believers than they've ever had in their history. Isn't that amazing? In spite of trying to stamp it out, Nazi tongue and the cultural revolution destroyed churches, stamped out no Bibles, no missionaries, no Christians, nothing. Wiping them out. And in spite of all of that, today they have more believers than they've ever had in history. Because God is the God of every generation. South Korea has more Christians for head of population than any nation on earth. Even Michael Palin and his travels for TV 
said when he went to South Korea, from the moment he arrived at the airport to the moment he left on the boat, almost everybody he met was, he said, a fundamental Christian, fundamentalist Christian, <laughs> who did their best to witness to. Indonesia, which is the greatest number of Muslims in any nation in the world. Somebody wrote a blog I read the other day. They said, a religious revolution is transforming Indonesia. Part of the spiritual blossoming entails Muslims embracing a more conservative form of faith, marrying global trends that have meant a proliferation of headscarves and beards in modern Islamic capitals. So in other words, Islam has become more militant. Sharia law is becoming more active. For then, she says, on the other hand, more surprising, though, is the boom in Christianity. Officially, Indonesia's second largest faith and a growing force throughout Asia. Indeed, the number of Asian Christian faithful exploded to 351 million adherents in 2005, up from 101 million in 1970, according to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, based in Washington, D.C. God is the God of every generation. A friend of mine, some of you may know him, I know probably Tony knows him, uh, Pierre Meyer. Anybody remember Pierre? Some of you remember Pierre? Pierre told me one time he was invited to go and preach in a church in, in Jakarta. And he says it wasn't a church building. Uh, he says, because what they do in Jakarta is a major city, what the Christians do, they hire out hotels and Sunday and, and office blocks and anywhere with their space, they hire them out for their service. So he says, the pastor said to me in the morning, he says, uh, prayer meetings at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, be there. So he says, I arrived at 6 o'clock and the pastor was there waiting on me. So he says, went up this elevator, uh, up to way up the top of this building. And he says, uh, it was about quarter past 6 by that time, and I thought, well, there might be 20 or 30 people in here. But he says, I heard a noise coming out of the room. And a real, a really, really noisy. There was people praying. And he says they opened the door, and he says there was hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people. And he says the noise of them, because he says they all pray at the same time, out loud. And he, he says, I was shocked. And he says the pastor saw me shocked. Oh, he says, he says they've been here since 5 o'clock this morning. He says they're just warming up for their prayer meeting now. <laughs> and he says there was mothers, there was fathers, there was grannies, there was grandas, and there were children from 5 o'clock in the morning. No wonder Indonesia is experiencing a boom in Christianity. Trying to get people out of the prayer meeting here, it's like pulling teeth. It's literally like pulling teeth. It's the least attended meeting in every church in the country. But not in Indonesia, not in South Korea, not where God's moving, it's not. God is the God of every generation, the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. He will not leave himself without a witness. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is returning for a bride, he said, without spot or blemish or any such thing. God has still something to say to our generation. Are we listening? Are we listening? Do we truly want God to move? Do we? Truly? Really? Are you? Would you be prepared for it? It would be highly inconvenient, I guarantee you. We'd have to lay down a lot of stuff even before God moves, but especially when He moves. But wouldn't it be wonderful, Clifford, 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if God moved like that in our nation? He's the God of every generation. He did in the past generations. He could do it in this generation if he gets the people hungry enough to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.